never gonna move it when the bones are good. The rest don't matter. Yeah, the pain could peel. The glass could shatter. Let it break. Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is November 30th, 2022, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, If the Bones Are Good, the Rest Don't Matter. Operative versus non-operative management of scaphoid fractures. And our guest skeptic today is Dr. Matt Schmidt. He's an orthopedic surgeon specializing in adolescent sports medicine and young adult hip preservation. Welcome back to the SGM, Matt. Thanks, Ken. It's, it's an honor to be here with you. Hey, before we get too far into this podcast, you better give us that military disclaimer, sir. Yes, the views and opinions of this blog and podcast do not represent, represent the United States government or the U.S. military. Well, you know, last time we recorded, we were looking at the evidence supporting the top 10 elective orthopedic procedures. That got a fair bit of feedback, and some of it seemed a little defensive. I think surgeons can be a little bit defensive sometimes, but it does highlight the lack of good quality level one evidence for most of our orthopedic procedures that we perform. Those studies simply haven't been done or haven't been done well. And Matt, I am not throwing rocks in a glass house because we've done an umbrella review looking at the quality or how much high level evidence do we have to support what we do in the emergency department. And that number is shockingly low. It is 2.8 percent, which means 97.8 percent of what we do doesn't have high level of evidence to support what we do. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't work, it just means we don't have high level of evidence to support what we're doing. But listeners may have already picked up on some seagulls in the background, maybe hearing the waves. We are sitting on the beach in Key West, Florida. There are a lot worse places to record a podcast. <laughs> there are many that. worst places to record a podcast. And you went out deep sea fishing this morning, didn't you? We did. Uh, my wife and I, many, many ER physicians know Jillian Schmitz. She was with me today and rumor has it she got a little seasick on the boat but did not throw up and we, uh, we were able to catch some uh, fish that we're going to cook for dinner tonight. Nice, nice. And if you didn't hear that name, that is the ASAP past President Dr. Jillian Schmidt. Yes, I just call her Jillian. Yeah, but, yeah, but, she, but of when, course. When she I, travels I, outside of the house, we make I, people. I, I call her past president or ma'am. <laughs> Anyways, uh, you brought us a case. I did. So this uh, for this podcast, we've got a 32-year-old man. He's a construction worker that presents to the emergency department after falling on his dominant right hand. He has swelling in his distal radius. He has snuffbox tenderness, uh, decreased range of motion, but he's neurovascularly intact and x-rays demonstrate a minimally displaced mid-waist fracture of his scaphoid. He's got a big job coming up in a couple of months and can't work with a cast. He asks, is surgery a better option than non-operative management? Well, fractures of the scaphoid are the most common carpal fractures presenting to the emergency department. Initial x-rays will pick up about 17% of these with only 7% more being identified on follow-up x-rays. The classic history for a scaphoid fracture is a fall on an outstretched hand or a foosh injury. But everyone needs to remember that you need to take a careful history because there can be other mechanisms that cause it, such as holding onto the steering wheel and being in a motor vehicle collision can apply enough force to fracture your scaphoid. Yeah, that's a hyperextension of the wrist. And it takes a lot of force, right? So you can imagine holding onto the steering wheel going, ah! and then, you know, a front end collision and then hyperextending that wrist. So that could mimic a foosh injury. Exactly, exactly. 
Physical examination of patients with a Fouch injury include palpating for snuff box tenderness. In a systematic review and meta-analysis by Carpenter et al., they were only able to find six studies with a total of only 170 patients. So you know, that's, that's a bunch of little studies right there. And that's what they found in the world's literature looking for the diagnostic accuracy of snuffbox tenderness. Now the evidence had substantial amount of heterogeneity. But the key one is the, the negative likelihood ratio to rule out a scaphoid fracture was 0.15 for snuffbox tenderness, which is moderate evidence. However, it had this wide confidence interval around that point estimate. It went down to 0.05, but it went all the way up to 0.43. So that's a wide confidence interval. Yeah, so you can't just use snuffbox tenderness. There's other physical exam findings. You know, you can do thumb compression, vibration pain, clamp sign, pain with ulnar deviation, radial deviation, specific pain over the scaphoid tubercle, and resisted supination and protonation. But none of these have a negative likelihood ratio low enough or under 0.1 to reliably rule out a scaphoid fracture. Now we did mention earlier that x-rays were unreliable as well to rule out a scaphoid injury. Other imaging modalities like getting a bone scan, an ultrasound, or even a CT scan have been used, but found to lack inaccuracy. The best imaging modality is an MRI, and I'll throw up the likelihood ratios for people in the show notes. So emergency physicians can use clinical decision instruments in help in diagnosing certain conditions. There's a lot of validated instruments for fractures, such as the Ottawa ankle rule that was about, that you guys talked about in episode three of the Skeptic Guide, the Ottawa knee rule uh, was in episode five, the Canadian C-spine rule, which was episode in 232, but there's no validated clinical decision instrument to help ER physicians accurately rule in or rule out a scaphoid fracture. Many times this is done as an outpatient after initial evaluation in the ED with advanced imaging. Now, in the case you presented, there's no diagnostic dilemma here. We don't need advanced imaging. We don't need some clinical decision instrument, which has never been validated. We don't have to worry so much about whether or not the snuffbox tenderness was there because we can see the fracture on the plain films. And so the question is, does the scaphoid fracture should it be treated operatively or non-operatively? That's, that's a good question. A vast majority, 90% of scaphoid fractures are non-displaced. And we know that these can be well treated with cast immobilization. If that fracture is displaced, it increases the risk of non-union from 14% up to 50%. If left with a non-union, almost always this results in secondary osteoarthritis of the wrist. Also, delayed unions and non-unions are more difficult to treat, i.e. it's a bigger surgery to treat those. And so there's, there's a trend in orthopedics to perform urgent surgical fixation of scaphoid fractures as opposed to, to traditional non-operative casting. Yeah, and whether someone undergoes surgery is an informed decision made between the patient and the surgeon, not between the patient and the emergency physician. I'm often talking to patients saying, you know, you're asking me about a surgical issue and I'm a physician, and so I can help them, I can prompt them, I can maybe prepare them. But ultimately, that's a decision between the surgeon and the patient. And it's, it's good to stay up in the literature so we can prepare the patient for the conversation with the surgeon. And we've seen this recently with the move to non-operative treatment of acute appendicitis or 
NODA, as in we are NODA gonna take out your appendix. And we covered this on SGEM 115, 256, and 345. But let's get back to our issue about scaphoid fractures. What's the clinical question, Matt? What is the effectiveness of operative versus non-operative management of non-displaced and minimally displaced scaphoid fractures? And by minimally displaced, we say less than two millimeters. And what reference do we have to go through? We have Johnson et al. It's a one-year outcome of surgery compared with immobilization in a cast for adults with undisplaced or minimally displaced scaphoid fractures. This was a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials from Bone and Joint Journal 2022. Okay, so we are going to go through the PCOT. What was the population included in this study? They included randomized controlled trials of adult patients older than 16 years with an undisplaced or minimally displaced fracture of the waist of the scaphoid. Yeah, so they excluded non-randomized controlled trials, children, and if the fracture was displaced more than two millimeters. What was the intervention? Operative management. And they compared it to? Non-operative management. Exactly. All right, let's run through the outcomes. What was the primary? The primary outcome was patient-reported outcome measures, or PROMs, of the wrist function at 12 months. And how about their secondary outcomes? They looked at pain, grip, uh, grip strength, range of motion of the wrist, and complications, including radi radiological evidence of non-union. And the type of study was a systematic review and meta-analysis. So the author's conclusions were, quote, we found no difference in functional outcome at 12 months for fractures of the waist of the scaphoid with less than or equal to two millimeter displacement treated operatively or non-operatively. The complication rate was higher with operative treatment." End of quote. All right, we've got seven questions that are the quality checklist questions for therapeutic systematic reviews. And you can give me a yes, a no, or unsure. Are you ready to go, Matt? I'm ready. Okay, so the first question. Is the clinical question, do you think it's sensible and answerable? Yes. All right. The search for the studies, was it detailed? And exhaustive? Yes, it was. The primary studies, were they of high methodological quality? Uh, unsure. The assessments of the study, were they reproducible? Yes. How about the outcomes? Do you think they're clinically relevant? That I'm unsure on. And was there low statistical heterogeneity for the primary outcome? N no. The I-squared was 74% for the fixed effect and 84% for the random effect forest plot. And the seventh and final question, the treatment effect. Was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? That I'm unsure of. All right, let's run through the results section. Using the PRISMA guidelines and searching multiple databases, they identified a total of 456 studies. But that's not how many were actually meta-analyzed. There were seven trials ultimately included in the meta-analysis and only four of them, which included just over 500 patients, reported on their primary outcome of interest, which was the functional outcome at 12 months. Now the demographics of those four RCTs had a mean age of 32, so that's not a surprise, but even less surprising, 84% were male. How about the key result? The key result is that there was no statistical difference in outcomes between the operative and non-operative patients. Yeah, that was their primary outcome, that patient-reported outcome measure, or PROM, of wrist function at 12 months. And what did they actually find? They found a non-statistical difference using Hedges G. Yeah, and we'll get into that in the talk nerdy section, because that may be a term that's unfamiliar to listeners. How about the secondary outcomes? 
Well, there were some statistical differences favoring operative management using fixed effect meta-analysis at six months for grip strength, range of motion, and odds ratio for non-union. But complications were obviously higher in the operative group. All right, so let's get into the talking nerdy section here. I've got five things to go through. You lead us off, though, with number one. Yeah, number one is there was a small number of studies. You mentioned this early. They included seven RCTs, but they really only used four for the meta-analysis and primary outcome with an, an N of 537 patients. Yeah, so we don't want to over-interpret these results when we have such little data. Um, the second point was uncertainty with only a few studies to meta-analyze and different outcome measures for each of those four studies, there were wide 95% confidence intervals around that point estimate of the observed effect size. Four of the seven RCTs were rated as low quality using the Cochrane Risk of Bias tool version two. All of these issues lead to a fair amount of uncertainty in the magnitude and precision of the primary and secondary outcomes. Our third point is the primary outcome measure. The primary outcome for this in each of the four RCTs used was different. This makes it hard to compare one study to another. It also contributes to the high I squared test as a measurement of heterogeneity for the primary outcome of patient reported outcomes. It was 74% using the fixed effect model, worse using the random effect model of 84%. In addition, is function and patient reported outcome at 12 months the purpose of operative treatment? Or maybe is it getting people back to work quicker? Treatment for scaphoid waist fractures has typically been long periods of immobilization and a thumb spike of cast, which can be very cumbersome, especially for a manual labor. So it depends what your patient would value and prefer when looking at this study. Uh, grip strength and range of motion, like you mentioned earlier in the results section under the secondary outcomes, favored operative management at six months. Mm, it was a secondary outcome, and so we should consider that hypothesis generating that could be further explored. Yeah, they also don't mention earlier healing time in oper operatively treated fractures. There's a difference between rate of non-union and time to union. Uh, and let's not forget about complications. Obviously, there's going to be more complications when you treat something operatively, but some of the reported complications were related to a quote-unquote scar from a four-centimeter incision that's not used any longer. Others were arthroscopic-assisted reductions, which we're not necessarily doing as well. So some of these techniques for fixation maybe not be the modern-day techniques either. So what you're saying is if they're not a hand model, having that scar may not be an issue. Exactly. <laughs> All right, now number four. Now this is probably the nerdiest point, and this is about the Hedges G. Hedges G is a measurement of effect size. Now it was first described by a guy named Larry Hedges all the way back in 1981. Typically it's used to determine how much a group, the experimental group, is different from another group, the control group. So it's very similar to a Cohen's D, but it's better when sample sizes are small, and by small it's less than 20. So small effect size is considered 0.2, a medium effect size for a Hedges G is 0.5, and a large effect size is anything greater than 0.8. The Hedges G for the primary outcome in this study was 0.15 and a p-value of 0.08. So it crossed the line of statistical no difference and it represents a small effect size that was not statistically different between operative and non-operative groups. Enough nerdiness on that point. 
the last talk nerdy I just lost everybody, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. The last talk nerdy point goes into the fact that we mentioned that they, they pulled originally seven articles, seven RCTs for this study, but really only reported on the outcomes for four of them. One of the, one of the articles that they didn't include, they included in the references, but it's not included in any of the data they present, uh, is a Bond article that looked at operative versus non-operative uh, treatment. It was a randomized controlled trial in military pa uh, patients. Uh, and so, for me, what they were looking for in that article was quicker return to full duty and quicker healing time. So essentially getting back to full duty and doing your work as a military laborer. And they did find in that paper that it was statistically significant that the patients got back with surgery. Uh, and so it's interesting, they did, they did not do a good job of reporting on patient-reported outcomes, but being able to get back to work being a, an outcome that many of our laborers want, it's something to consider. Yeah, and this is the importance of going back to the actual studies that were included in the systematic review. And sometimes you can't meta-analyze them, but you can do a narrative review and knowing that from a military standpoint, and you're currently in the military, Correct. and so you have that experience of knowing more about what those service individuals would value and prefer and getting them back to function in their job. They may opt for an operative management as opposed to a non-operative management. And so I think it's really important to know the nuances, the details. There's so many layers that uh, you can get into in these studies. But that's the five nerdy points we wanted to go through. Now it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Uh, I think a friendly amendment to their conclusions would be that they did not find a statistically significant difference between the two treatments rather than saying no difference. The point estimates did favor operative management, but the 95% confidence interval for the primary outcome at one month had a high odds ratio that crossed 1.0. Yeah, that's a nice friendly amendment and it's, and it's why I think you need to be skeptical about just reading an abstract. And so you read the abstract and you read their conclusion and that it may have been summarized so much that it misses some of the nuances and it misses some of the things because operative management was better. It just wasn't statistically better and in certain populations it may be a lot better for what they value or prefer. How about giving us an SGM bottom line? There's a lack of evidence demonstrating superiority of operative compared to non-operative management in non-displaced or minimally displaced scaphoid fractures. How are you going to resolve that case that you presented of the 32-year-old construction worker who had a, you know, a lot of a big job or something coming up? You need to engage in some shared decision making with the patient. He ultimately, in this case, is going to decide to have surgery and try and get back to work sooner. But every patient should be approached in a, in a uh, patient-specific manner. And so how are you going to take this systematic review and apply this information clinically? It all depends. This review didn't demonstrate a statistical benefit to surgery at one year post-op. However, we talked about that Bond article uh, where people healed four to five weeks earlier and had an earlier return to full duty in a military population at six weeks earlier. In my practice, or at least when I used to operate on bones I could swallow, operative treatment was reserved for active duty personnel with a, a patient-centered joint decision. This was because they fit that bill of a manual laborer and needed the use of their hand and wrist. As a surgeon, I would have mine fixed. I, if I had a job where I could spend eight to 12 weeks in a thumb spica cast or short arm cast, then I'd be fine with non-operative management. But that's, I operate two to three days a week and could not do that in a uh, thumb spica cast. And so, there does appear to be a role for early operative treatment in select patients, and this should be studied further with modern day surgical techniques where we do things percutaneously without large scars, et cetera. And so how are you gonna take this systematic review, and it, and it had some pretty nerdy statistics in there with that hedges G, how are you gonna translate that 
to, quote, English at the patient's bedside so that they can understand what you're trying to inform them of. Yeah, you have to tell them that they've got a broken bone in their wrist called the scaphoid, and it's very important that this bone heals correctly to prevent arthritis. There's two ways that it can be fixed. One is with an operation to put a screw in the bone to, to help it heal. The other is with wearing a cast for two to three months and close follow-up to ensure there's no subsequent displacement. Both end up healing fine when you look at majority of the outcome studies. An operation may get you back quicker, but it does have more potential risks. And we need to be honest with our patients and explain to them potential risks and benefits to both operative and non-operative treatments. I think that's a great way to present it to the patient. All right, it's time for the Keener contest. Last week's winner was David Glazer. He's part of the EMA faculty, actually, and he knew that Thomas Hopkin Gallaudet first developed American Sign Language at the American School for the Deaf in Hartford, Connecticut, way back in 1817. Matt, what question do you have for us this week? What's another more outdated name for the scaphoid, and where does it come from? Oh, that's a good question, because I actually had a friend from England who used the old-fashioned name, and I'm like, what? I was all confused. Anyway, so if you know what that more outdated name for the name of the scaphoid is, and where, where does it come from, then send an email to thesgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool, skeptical prize. Well, thank you, Matt. I uh, look forward to hearing from several of your orthopedic surgeon friends, and maybe even some plastic surgeons who operate on the wrist too, uh, once we uh, post this episode. No, thanks for having me. I'm hoping we can generate some good discussion around this and, and maybe people won't be quite as defensive as, as last time, but I'm sure that the, the surgeon's fragile ego will factor in as well. <laughs> well, um, you, I know that you're moving from Texas, where you've been for a very long time, to San Diego in the new year. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, this time, when you give the SGM tagline, can you shift out of your Texas accent and start coming up with a Southern Californian accent? <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll always be a Texan at heart, but I'll, I'll give it a try. Dude, remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Bra. <laughs> Talk to everyone next week.